It is such a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, we have opportunity this morning. We're going to have Stephen, our worship guy, worship pastor, worship friend. I don't know what you would want to call him. I what does he want to be called is probably the better question. Um, I am excited. I've gotten to know Stephen uh, uh, for a time now, about what, since November? Is that about right? I have grown to appreciate Stephen's uh, ministry here at the church in leading worship, and I'm encouraged this morning that you get to hear him teach, because uh, in elder meetings and in various times, I always appreciate his insights into the Word, and so uh, I'm thrilled to have him come up and, and teach us. This is, uh, Stephen, one of my favorite passages of the Old Testament, so don't mess it up. I got to put some pressure on him right now. Uh, so if uh, Stephen comes up, I want to pray for us as uh, he leads us in uh, to the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can turn to your word and find encouragement and hope, conviction. And Father, I pray that you would uh, just speak to us uh, through your servant this morning. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that we have your word and that we have it freely, and that you have given it to us that we might learn more about you. So, Lord, we just pray that you would bless our time this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I'm really glad to be here today. Like you said, normally I'm up here doing the songs, um, but I really get the deep honor of being able to open the Word of God with you. Um, I don't do it all that often. I, it's something I really do enjoy doing. Um, my dad's a pastor, so I've been kind of around preaching for a while. Um, but like I said, it's, it's something that I cherish. I love the process of it. I love being able to dive into something um, and to allow, first and foremost, God to speak to my own heart. And so I pray that what I've gleaned from this passage, that you also would be able to glean something from it. Um, we serve a great God. We serve a God that he is present. He wants to interact with you. He wants to speak with you. And so I pray that today that you would have hearts that would be receptive, that you would have ears that would be open, that you would have minds that would understand the true gospel, the true Christ. Uh, if we can go ahead and stand, I'm going to go ahead and read. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 22. We've been in the process of uh, the story of redemption, the drama of redemption. And it says in verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. Here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for the burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, my father. And he replied, here I am, my son. And Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. And when they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. 
And Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have, had not, since you have not withheld your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of a son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn this is the Lord's declaration because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son. I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham settled in Beersheba. Now after these things, Abraham was told, Milcah also has borne sons to your brother, Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, his brother Buz, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Jesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name is Remuah, also bore Teba, Geham, Hash and Maka. You can be seated as I pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your truth. Father God, as we gather together, people, just people, in the presence of the Almighty King, the Eternal Father, Father, we ask that you would not withhold from us but you would give us all good things today, Lord, that we would hear your voice. I pray that, Father, today that, that we would not leave this place the same way that we came in, but we would, we would be changed by your presence, by your truth, Father God. That we wouldn't just be better moral people, but we'd be people impressed into the image of your Son, and we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen and amen. Today we're going to talk. Uh, what, what I want to discuss with you today is, is why would God Abraham sacrifice his son? And what does that have to do to us today? What does that mean for us today? Right, um, last week, Mike brought us the passage. And he mentioned something that I want to kind of reiterate it just a little bit. Uh, so when we study when we study the Bible, when we study Scripture, uh, there are some rules we need to remember. And one of those rules that Mike mentioned was the idea of context, okay? Context is super important. Um, in school, we used to say context is king, okay? So we don't go to the Bible, and we don't grab a word, we don't grab a, 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 a sentence or a, a verse or an idea. We don't bring it out and then try to make it what we think it needs to be said, Okay? We don't impose our ideas upon it. What we do is we allow Scripture to speak for itself. We allow it to defend itself. Okay, so that's why context matters. Because when we don't do that, that's where we get heresies from. Okay, so what we do do is we take that verse, we take that word, we take that idea, and we put it within context of itself. Okay, so 
words have to be in context to the verse, and verse has to be in context to the chapter, and chapter to the book, and book to the Bible. It all has to work together, okay? So right now, when we start in Genesis 22, we have to understand the context. So in verse 1, it says this, after these things. So naturally, the question that should come to your mind is, what things, okay? And easily stated, I believe it is everything that happened between chapter 12 and 21, okay? Everything that happened between 12 and 21. See, I believe it is reasonable to understand that Abraham's faith at the beginning of his call by God was not the same faith that we have here now in 22. I believe it to be just like any other, any other person's faith. It would be fresh, it would be exciting, it would be growing, okay? There would be such great wonder at knowing the true God. And that he would come to know him in greater detail, and that he would come to see him as unique and different from every other false god that he's ever worshipped. See, Abraham had been through a lot in his time with God. It can be easy to elevate the patriarchs, okay? It can be easy to elevate them to a position way above us. See, sometimes we can look at them and say, man, they're so much better than we are. They're so much more godly, so much more holy. But the reality is, is that Abraham is just like us in so many ways. See, as modern readers of Scripture, we forget to allow Scripture to have its breadth. And what I mean by that is we read, we read Scripture compressed a lot of the times, don't we? We read it, we read verses and chapters Right? And we forget that within those verses and chapters, there is years and years in all of that. So in reality, Abraham, in this stories, there are years of him lying. Okay, There are years of him talking to God and questioning him and trying to figure out his heart and his will and what he's doing. And there's also him working out the flesh trying to get God's covenant to come about. See, we have watched Abraham grow in his trust of God and keeping his promises, but we've also watched him fail. See, as a kid, I moved a lot. Uh, was born in Hawaii, spent about a year there. From Hawaii, my parents moved us to the main line, or to the main land. Uh, we, we settled in Colorado and lived pretty much all my upbringing in Colorado. Within Colorado, we moved within a lot of homes, okay? From Colorado, my parents moved us to Virginia. From Virginia, I finished out high school, went to Australia, studied school there for a little bit, and I came back to the United States. During the time I was in Australia, my parents had moved from Virginia to Maryland. You guys tracking with me? Okay, so when I came back, I stayed in Maryland for a little bit, trying to figure out what I want to do the rest of my life, found another school, so I moved from Maryland to Pennsylvania, okay, finished out school, met my wife, Michelle, we got married, we stayed there a little bit longer, kind of served, and then from, Mar uh, from Pennsylvania, we moved to Georgia, where I went and helped my dad and his church for a little bit, so in that time, they moved from Maryland to Georgia, so from Georgia, we moved to Ohio, where I served in the church there, from Ohio, moved back to Pennsylvania, moved a whole bunch in Pennsylvania, and then from Pennsylvania to Fort Wayne, Indiana. 
all right? That's a lot. That's a whole lot, okay? So the thing about moving is that moving can be really unsettling, right? It's a whole lot of news, right? There's new homes, new neighborhoods, new schools, right? New experiences. So sometimes when those moves, it can be exciting, right? Like I remember as a kid, I tended to bounce back a little bit, so the moves are okay. But I remember like, okay, what does this house have to offer? So it's kind of this fun thing of, okay, what secrets does it hold, right? What little cubbies or passages, you know, it was, it was finding out the new things about the neighborhood and the new friends and, and the new schools. It was all new. It was exciting. It was adventurous. But sometimes moving, and moving you look back and you say, you know what, I really miss my old home. I really miss my old friends. I really miss the old neighborhood. Sometimes we look back and we say, you know what, those are great times. I really cherish those. But sometimes we look back and we say, those, those weren't good times. And I made a lot of mistakes. And I really want this new move to be a fresh start, maybe something different. Right now, Michelle and I, we, we've been here in Fort Wayne for a little bit. We bought a house in April. And for us, in the course of our life, right now, things are feeling pretty settled. It's not that we don't have our issues and our complications, but for the most part, our life feels a little more settled, and we're really grateful for that. We have a new home. I love where I work now. It's just great. See, right now, this is Abraham's life. He's been through a lot, but in the past few years, everything has been feeling settled. Like, his last major trial was actually letting go of Ishmael. And I don't even know what that would feel like to have to give up your firstborn son. Even though Ishmael came through Abraham's working, even though he was trying to make the covenant happen, he's still his son, right? And I couldn't imagine the feeling of Abraham having to let his firstborn son go. But Abraham has Isaac now. And the last few years have been good. And that brings us to our present time within chapter 22, after these things. And that brings us to the testing of God's, of, of God's testing of Abraham's commitment. See, immediately we find in our text that God is testing Abraham. This is something very specific and intentional in the mind and intention of God. God has been preparing Abraham for this moment. Not that he would have answers or that he would even be stronger, but rather that he would have the heart to trust despite the circumstances and the unseen future. Let me quickly remind us today that God does not tempt anyone. James 1.13 says that God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. See, tempting is an intentional on failure. It seeks to lure and persuade. It often shows the glamorous up front, but withholds the cost attached. What God was doing here was for Abraham's benefit and to the glory of God. So in the midst of this season of calm, God calls out Abraham with a request that I am almost certain would have never crossed his mind. See, in the story, we will see God using this situation as a foreshadowing of what God would eventually do at Calvary 
And many will see Isaac as a sort of type of Christ to come, and we will unpack this later. But here we see our first similarity in God's description of Isaac and Jesus. See, God in describing Isaac as your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And I can't help but to think of the ways that Jesus has been described in Scripture. Right? Jesus is called beloved at his baptism. And as God's one and only son in John chapter 3. But I also think within this scenario right now, God is setting the stage in Abraham's heart. It seems that with every word spoken, God is driving deeper and deeper the circumstance. See, now obviously Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son, right? What this really means is that Isaac is unique. He is different. He is being contrasted with Ishmael. This isn't just kinship that we're talking about, but rather covenant. God isn't asking Abraham, do you love me more than your child? But instead, he is asking him, do you trust my faithfulness and covenant keeping despite the circumstances? Let me say that again. He is not asking him, do you love me more than your child? He is asking him, do you trust me and faithfulness keep covenant keeping despite the circumstances? See, it would be one thing if God had just simply promised Abraham a son, right? If that was the whole promise of, hey, Abraham, you don't have a kid, I'm going to give you a kid. It would have been one thing if that was the promise, and then he says, hey, I want that kid back. But that's not the scenario. See, we know that there was so much more to the promise. It was something greater to be realized through Isaac as a sort of catalyst. See, Abraham had recognized two absolutes. The first absolute that he recognized was God's covenant regarding Isaac. And his second absolute that he recognized was that now God is calling him to sacrifice Isaac. Two absolutes. And as I had stated earlier, I believe it to be fair to understand Abraham's faith to be that of a process, and that the faith he had at his first calling is not the same faith that he has here now. See, I find it interesting in the history past of of Abraham that he was more willing to discuss things with God, right? So we look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. What does Abraham do? He goes out and he approaches God. He says, hey, what if, right? Or he tries to take the covenant into his own hands and has a child against God's wishes, right? See, Abraham clearly felt a boldness and a relationship in being able to discuss things with God. And I love that about him. I'm not as bold, if I can be honest, I'm not as bold in my faith like that sometimes, but I want more of that. But in the most trying point of Abraham's life, if there was ever a moment where you would think that he would have just cause to literally stop God and say, hold on a minute, can we just talk this through? Like, I'm not really understanding what you're wanting in all this. Can we just discuss this? If there was ever a time that he would have that right, don't you think it'd be right now? But interestingly, 
What does Abraham say? He says nothing. He literally says nothing. He does the very opposite. And in that, it shows the growth of faith that he has had through the years leading to this point. We see his maturity. And that brings us to verse 3, which is Abraham's obedience. See, it says he rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And not only that, but he also cuts the wood. That is obedience. See, I don't think this test can get any more real for Abraham right now. We aren't given a glimpse into his thoughts during this time, but I think we can definitely speculate. I mean, if we were to put ourselves in his shoes right now, right, life is going really well. He has the covenant son, the promised son. And then out of nowhere, God comes to him and he says, hey, I want you to give him back. And I can't imagine what would go through his mind right now. He gets up the next day, says he gets up early, and he gathers the things for the trip. He prepares everything, and not only that, he goes out and he cuts the wood. And I can't help but wonder, with every blow of that axe, he's thinking, this is for my son. See, there is so much time given to him to talk himself out of this. To say, you know what, this isn't the God that I know. You wouldn't ask this. This just doesn't make any sense. Maybe I heard wrong. But it said that they journeyed for three days. They journeyed for three days, knowing that the end result would be him losing his son. See, for Abraham, the notion of sacrificing, it would not have been obscure to him. He would have understood the process and the stress that was involved with it. See, don't forget that he came from a pagan culture, right? So he knew the world that was filled with appeasing the gods that were often fickle and demanding. And not only that, but child sacrifice wasn't that uncommon during this time. In fact, later on in Israel's history, God even condemns the practice and warns them not to do like the other nations. But sadly, even Israel eventually absorbs the pagan practice. I kind of found it interesting in my readings that, that uh, Israel, while they're practicing child sacrifice, sought to keep it separate from the temple. A lot of writers point out that, that they practice it in the places called the Valley of Hinnom and on the high places. So in some way they found cons- Consolus saying, well, we're not doing it there. See, even Isaac in his question to Abraham regarding the lamb shows that he has general knowledge of the sacrifices and the commonality of it. So as difficult as it may have been to follow through with the action of sacrifice, I believe there was a part of Abraham that thought if all false gods expected this kind of obedience, how much more the true and living God. See, I don't think Abraham's agreeing to the task I don't think he's saying, hey, this is all well and good. Yeah, you're right, God. What I think he's saying to himself is, I've had experience with dead gods, and they demand obedience. 
and now I serve the living God, how much more should I be obedient to him? But we still have to wonder, how could Abraham do this? How could he be so quick to do such a horrendous act? See, I believe the, ver- the answer is found in verses 5 and 8. So, so far we have Abraham, we have Isaac, and we have two young men heading towards the location to be given by God. And at the end of three days, it says that Abraham saw the place from afar. He then tells his two young men to stay while him and Isaac finish the journey. And in verse 5, it says, in verse 5, it doesn't say sacrifice, but instead it's the first time we see the word worship used. See, the word in Hebrew is shakah. It's first used in Genesis 18.2, where Abraham saw three men from afar and went out to meet them. And the next time we see the word is in Genesis 19.1, where Lot meets two angels at the gate. In both of these situations, the word is translated as bowed. But in Genesis 22, it is translated as worship. The word rightfully means to bow down or to prostrate oneself, okay? It is the action of making oneself lower in the presence of someone who is superior, So often the lower you would go signified the greater honor to the person you were before. See, this is Abraham's heart right now. He is so intent on the honor before God as supreme. But that still isn't enough. See, many people have done horrible and difficult things in honor of someone or something, have they not? We still have a holy God asking Abraham to kill his son. Let's not forget that. Let me say that again. We still have a holy God asking Abraham to kill his son. And that is almost impossible to rectify. But amazingly, somehow Abraham is looking through this scenario to something far greater. The second part of my answer why I believe Abraham could do what God has called him to, and really the main point of the entire story is his response to, uh, to Isaac. And he says in verse 8 to the question by stating, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Did you catch that? He's looking through the task at something greater. Remember the two absolutes. God's covenant with Isaac, and God is now asking him to sacrifice. He doesn't understand what's happening, but he's seeing through it. And this is what the writer of Hebrews means in chapter 11 when they state, he considered God to be able to even raise someone from the dead. See, Abraham right now has so much confidence in God and the provision of him to accomplish his covenant that even though he doesn't understand the situation, the method, he knows the result. That's how he's bringing the two absolutes together. He literally does not understand the process, but he knows the end. And this is outstanding 
Because in all of my reading, in all of my reading, we know that child sacrifice is common. But what is never addressed, what is never talked about, there is no example in so far in all the history that we have written down, there is no example or, or point of resurrection ever being talked about or taking place. Stop and think about that. Abraham knows God is so faithful that even if he kills his son Isaac, he'll bring him back to life. But the crazy thing is that the, the, the idea was never known. It was never talked about. Nobody could point to say, hey, look, so-and-so was resurrected from the dead, so God could do it too. Just wasn't done. The Spirit is working in Abraham's life despite the problem at hand. So remember, the question at hand is not, do you love me more than your child, but rather, do you trust my faithfulness and covenant keeping despite the circumstances? And this is why Abraham's actions of faith are so important. See, sometimes we hear the saying, a leap of faith, right? I'm sure some of us maybe have even used it. And I cannot tell you how far from the truth that is. See, looking back at Hebrews eleven nineteen, we read again that Abraham considered God to be able. Did you notice that really important word there? Considered. All right, I know a lot of pastors like to throw out the, uh, the words from the original Greek and Hebrew, right? But as my old professor, my old Greek professor used to tell us, that Greek is like adding color to a black and white TV. Okay, it adds depth, it adds color, it adds nuances that we normally would miss. See, when I was in high school, I took a mission trip two weeks to Italy uh, with some people from my church. And we flew into Rome. We took a train down to the lower end of the boot, to Taranto, Italy. Now, Taranto is olive country. Okay, so when you get there, it's amazingly beautiful. Okay. And it is literally just for miles, as far as you can see, when you look out, the sun is up, the clear day, and it is just olive groves everywhere. It's phenomenal. The smell is amazing. Right? We stayed with the local church. They're a really small church. Obviously, the food was amazing. Okay? And I remember this one time, we went to this restaurant for breakfast in town. Really small place. It was a bi-level place, so the, the first part of the, the building was a lower part, and it was all the seating. Really not much seating at all. And then the back of the building was the elevated part. And on that little part was this lady, probably 70s, sweet Italian lady. And she is hand-making pasta. That's what she's doing, right? And so the way that the menu worked is if you wanted ravioli, it was dependent on how much ravioli she made for that day. Right? There was, no, there was no batch sizing. There was no, like, I'm going to make a whole bunch and we're just going to parcel it out throughout the week. There was no leftovers. It was literally fresh and new, and you got to enjoy that. See, I can take a can of plain, unseasoned tomato sauce, and I can pour that over spaghetti, and I can have a full stomach, right? Or, or I can savor every bite bursting with rich and delicate flavors that have been simmered in a pot all day. And I can have that poured over fresh, handmade pasta. Right? 
they're both the same dish, but not equal in representation, right? See, God, in giving his word, has done it with flavor. Let's not grow weary in coming to it and savoring it. See, in the Greek, the word consider means to reckon, to compute, to calculate. So applied to our context, it shows that Abraham didn't just simply trust God on a gut feeling or a whim. He didn't say, I've got nothing to lose, so why not? Actually, he took everything that he currently knew and experienced about God. He weighed it and then made his decision. See, originally it was a mathematical word. So he weighed out God's character and qualities and used that as his deciding factor. See, that is why the full gospel is so important. How could we ever expect somebody to make a literal life-changing choice when not being uninformed correctly? So growing up in Colorado, it meant I spent a lot of time outdoors, okay? Grew up in Colorado Springs, so literally out of my front window of my house was 14,000 plus feet of elevation. I got to see Pikes Peak every morning. Loved it. In fact, my mom worked in Manitou Springs, which is really the last town before you actually summit the peak. So a lot of times as a kid, I spent a lot of years during the summer running around outdoors in the mountains. And uh, one particular activity I do remember very well is rock climbing. I tended to follow after my brother, and he was older than me. And so when he got involved in it, naturally so did I. And uh, there are, there's a lot of different types of rock climbing, okay? Uh, three main categories I want to just kind of point out today is this. There's bouldering, there's free solo, and then there's free climbing, okay? So bouldering is a relatively safe and fun activity, okay? So picture with me this. It's a person that uses shoes and chalk, okay? Chalks is so that your fingers can grip the rock better. So shoes and chalks, and you climb small technical routes no more than 20 feet high, and then you use really thick fall pads or mats, okay? So if you fell, you wouldn't hurt yourself, okay? And then there is what's called free solo climbing, okay? And that is where you don't use any equipment other than shoes and chalk except the routes increase exponentially to hundreds to even thousands of feet. So picture somebody without the aid of a rope or a harness climbing thousands of feet, Okay, that's free solo. You fall on one of those, you are guaranteed to either injure and or kill yourself. There's plenty of stories of that. And the third one we'll look at today is called free climbing. And free climbing uses ropes and harnesses, uses anchors so that if you fell, you're caught. Okay, so in regards to the safety equipment, there is standardized rating that assures equipment is bought and sold that is capable of saving a life, okay? So when they test their limits of the safety equipment, one needs to remember that the equipment, the rope, the harness, it doesn't simply need to withstand the weight of the climber or the mass. It also has to withstand the velocity 
of the fall. Are you tracking with me? The weight of the climber plus the velocity of the fall, okay? So they test equipment to make sure that both are covered. And they do this by dropping weights on rope or harnesses a certain amount of times. And they have to withhold a certain amount of times and a certain amount of weight. And they also hang weight from harnesses and ropes. And they have to hold for a specific number of minutes. So the thing about it is that the math gets really crazy. To be honest, I'm not smart enough to understand the math. But they use hundreds to thousands of extra pounds when they test this. So to give you an example, when they test a harness, everybody knows what a harness is? It's the weird pant things you put on, right? It's kind of like a belt thing, right? So when they test a harness, they will hang 1.7 tons, which is just under 2,400 pounds from a harness for three minutes. Okay? That's a lot of weight. See, faith isn't just mental assent. Abraham didn't just simply tell himself that it seemed well and good, and then he moved on to something else. Faith, without being a work, is an action. Let me say that again. Faith without being a work is an action. And what I mean by that is this, is that Scripture is clear that faith, that salvation is a gift of God. There is nothing I or you can do to ever earn or merit salvation. But faith without being a work is still an action. See, faith shifts weight. At the beginning, Abraham's weight was on himself and on his inability to produce an heir. Here, his weight is on the God keeping covenant. When I was learning how to rock climb, see, I can know all the safety statistics, and I can know all the numbers and all the techniques, but until I actually leaned into the harness and the rope, I didn't actually believe it. That's what I believe Abraham is doing here in this moment. He is so convinced that he has no other option. And don't forget, he's tried. And that's why he could tell the two young men to stay there and await both of their return. And why he could respond to Isaac with God will provide. And that brings us to a verse 11. And we see God's provision. So right now we have Abraham. And we have Isaac at the spot God has determined. They have journeyed at least three days, carrying not only the weight of the supplies, but also the weight of the task. In continuing his obedience, Abraham builds the altar, lays the wood upon it, binds his son, and places him on top. I'm sure many of us right now have this image of an older, white-bearded man tying a, a child with rope, and many commentators believe that Isaac... All right, given the task of carrying the wood, which would have been a lot and it would have been heavy, but also because Isaac had the knowledge of the sacrificial system and in the general working of ages and years within our story, they believe that Isaac is anywhere between as young as 18 and as old as 30. People, this is not a child. This is a grown man who is submitting to his father. Think about that. 
At any moment, Isaac could have gotten away. But he didn't. Abraham takes his knife, raises it above his head, and in an instant, the Lord stops him. And I don't think God would actually allow Abraham to slay Isaac. I say that because I don't believe Isaac is the focal point of the story. See, we talk about him being a type of Christ to come, and in some ways he is, but once again, the question isn't about Abraham's love of Isaac. Abraham knew what sacrifices meant. Shedding of blood covers. It appeases. And in some way, I'm sure he understood that this wouldn't even cover his deepest needs. And through this experience with false idols, I bet he knew this wouldn't work. And I also bet he knew that this wasn't an unlikely request. See, the whole story hinges on God's provision. As God commends Abraham's faith, we find that the whole trajectory has been this, the substitute. Isaac isn't like Christ because Isaac didn't die. The ram died in his place. And because of this, Abraham speaks out, calling the place Jehovah-Jireh. And we've heard this name before, and I'm sure some of us have even invoked that in our times of need. We've probably cried out to the Jehovah-Jireh, God, be my provider. What an astounding statement. And yet, don't overlook the fact that Abraham doesn't call God this, but rather the place. I don't think it's wrong to describe God in these terms, but here we are seeing something very significant. This is Mount Moriah, which would later be the place that, God, uh, that David purchased in preparation for Solomon to build the temple that would eventually house the presence of God. And even later still, it'll become the location of where many commentators believe Christ was, die, was crucified. Even today, it is a highly fought over and important piece of land. I see it threading its way through history in our drama of redemption. But I want to point out something. The translation of Jehovah Jireh is actually better stated, God will see, or God will see to it. It's a small nuance, but one that I believe is important. It is speaking more than just temporal provision. It is actually addressing the provision of our deepest need. And not only that, it shows that God wasn't absent or withdrawn from Abraham. This is why I believe that God never intended Abraham to kill his son. I don't think that God was on edge, hoping he didn't miss this crucial moment, right? I don't think he's like me, how sometimes I can be so distracted while my kids are trying to get my attention. God isn't like those YouTube videos of dads who catch their kids at the last second before danger happens, right? He's not like that. This is intended. See, notice Abraham doesn't speak of the immediate moment of provision, but actually applies it to the future. He will provide. He recognizes the symbolism of what is taking place, and this is why he matters. Remember that Abraham had two sons, and when Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees in John 8, they bring up that they are children of Abraham. Do you remember that story? 
The question truly is this, of which child are you speaking? Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4 quickly. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, it says this, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. These things are being taken figuratively, for the woman represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But in Jerusalem, above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth, bursting into song and shout for you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as then the children born of a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit. So also now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave but of a free woman. So we find that there is two sons, one of flesh, one of promise, one of law and one of faith, one of slavery and one of freedom. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in John 8, 56, when he says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. So as we close, see, we're in the same position as Abraham was. Though our context and experiences differ from his, we still have the same request being made to us. This is what the gospel is truly asking. When someone is presented with a biblical gospel, they have the same opportunity as Abraham did to either calculate and consider God to be faithful and truthful to provide the sufficient lamb or not. We look backwards to the cross, and at the same time, we look forwards to the culmination. While Abraham, being before us, looked through the cross to the culmination. It's a matter of position, but we look at the same way. See, we may not have the same test as Abraham, but there will be seasons in our life where we will feel the weight of the situation, and we will feel the velocity of the situation. And when we've gotten our breath back from being hit by the problem, the weight will settle upon our shoulders. And it's at that moment that we need to look to Christ, even more so, with greater confidence that no matter what may come, in Christ we are carried. You can have the band back up. See, that is faith. And I don't want to make faith seem it's so simple and that's just a that's just mental consent and stuff. There's so much more involved in faith. There's so much more salvation. There's so much that God is doing on the backside of that we don't recognize. But we're just like Abraham. We are called to, to seek God. We're called to understand Him and to trust Him. To believe that He is faithful in, in, in His covenant keeping. Father God, we thank You so much for who you are, and for what you've done in our life. And Father God, I pray that, 
that where we are weak, that you would make us strong. That we were lacking in faith, that you would increase. I pray that, Father God, that you would help us to see you in a new and a fresh way. That, Father God, that we would love you even more so. When it's all of this we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen and amen.